Father, we thank you for your amazing grace to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father, for your display of your sovereignty over our nation and all the nations of the earth in these last months. We thank you, Father, for how you've humbled us uh, with one microscopic virus. And Lord, how you have further humbled us with the death of one man in Minneapolis and the resulting riots in our streets. We ask, Father, that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, that you would revive us, that you would compel us, O Lord, to hold this world loosely and to press on in faith for your glory, to lean not on our own understanding, but all our ways to acknowledge you, to live for Christ, to live for the mission of Christ, to live for the redemption of souls, that they might live forever. We ask, Father, that you would speak even now through your word to each of us in the mighty name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Let's read there together. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. And all of God's saints said, Amen. Saints, and all of America with you, there's a question I must ask you. Do you hear the laughter? In fact, not just you and not just America, but all of the West and not just all of the Western world, but all of the globe. Do you hear the laughter? There has not been much mirth, not much glee, not much joy in these last few months on the planet. And yet there is laughter to be heard. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-holy creator of the universe and all life in it is laughing. America rejected God. The West, the Judeo-Christian West, has rejected its God. We have rejected God's Word as a mythological work of men. We have rejected God's laws, an archaic restrictive burden upon us. We have rejected God's Gospel as irrelevant foolishness. And then we join the atheist disciples of Richard Dawkins or the apostate disciples of N.T. Wright who both call the Gospel, quote, cosmic child abuse. We became gods unto ourselves, deciding for ourselves what is good and evil until nothing was evil at all, except God, God's law, and God's gospel. We silently tolerated, and then we loudly celebrated fornication, adultery, abortions, unconscionable murder of 1.6 billion babies, homosexuality, transgenderism, drag queen story time, and then drag queen kids dancing provocatively to the applause of sexual deviance with mom and dad proudly looking on. How did America, and beyond us, the West with us, get here? Friends, judgment begins with the house of God. I've seen many genuine Christians and many professing Christians pointing the finger out to the world 
and saying God is judging the world. And no doubt He is. And yet judgment begins with the house of God. America's Christians refuse to love God and love perishing sinners by going, therefore, to preach God's law and God's gospel in the city center, in the open air, everywhere perishing sinners are found, calling every man, woman, and child to repent and confess Christ as Lord. America's Christians turned an apathetic, hateful, blind eye to the cruel slaughter of 125,000 babies a day, a day, and just kept getting their best life now while safely and comfortably sipping their designer coffees. America's Christians opened their churches to the rebellion, the perversion, and the baby genocide, calling the unregenerate, unrepentant participants their liberal, then emergent, then woke Christian brothers and sisters. America's Christians filled Christ's church with unholy rebels who hate God, hate His law, hate His gospel, and delight in things that God hates. Dear Christian, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. America's churches despise the public revelation of God's law and gospel as a rule. They despise it. You're doing it wrong! is the universal Christian protest against the public proclamation of the gospel. Just yesterday morning, I was preaching John 3.16, of all things. And this woman, a professing Christian, stepped up and said, Jesus wouldn't do that! I said, ma'am, do you know why they killed Jesus? Do you know why the whole world united against Him and said, crucify Him, crucify Him? And she stood there silent. I said, it's because He did this. Because he preached everywhere to all men that they must repent of their sin and believe the gospel, believe upon him, or they will perish. And they hated him for it. Do you know how they responded to his very first sermon? They took him to a cliff to throw him off. That's how they responded to Jesus, our King, our Lord, the Creator, the Holy One. Perfect love, perfect wisdom, preaching the perfect sermon with the perfect pitch, the perfect tone, perfect delivery, and yet they take him to a cliff. Can I improve upon that? No. No. And no other preacher can either. Except that God regenerate the dead heart, the world will always reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. How tragic it is when Christians step up to condemn the ministry of the gospel. You're doing it wrong. America's churches despise what the Lord Jesus and His apostles did. We train, we consciously train our pastors and missionaries not to do what Jesus and the apostles did. We train our pastors and missionaries to be safe and respectable preachers behind pulpits, not to be despised and rejected preachers like Jesus, Peter, Paul, and so many heroes of our faith throughout the last 2,000 years, who preached in the open air. We train our pastors and missionaries not to obey the Great Commission by going to the world with a call to repent and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. 
We train our pastors and missionaries not to do what both the divine author and original recipients of the Great Commission did. We train our pastors and missionaries not to fill their cities with the gospel and to turn the world upside down by going boldly into the city square to preach Christ to perishing sinners. We train our pastors and missionaries not to emulate the dusty, courageous, dangerous, beaten, bloody, and often jailed preachers in the book of Acts. Instead, we train our pastors and missionaries to preach the book of Acts as a dusty history in the confines, comfort, and safety of our church building. We spice up our sermons with quotes from gospel heroes like George Whitfield, but we won't emulate heroes like George Whitfield. Instead, we train our pastors, missionaries, and congregants to invite the unregenerate, unrepentant, God-hating world to church. Church, ecclesia, the called out ones. The church is for the church. The church is for the regenerate. The church is for the born again. Our mission is to go find the lost, bring the gospel to them that they might be born again, and then come to church as the called out ones, not to fill the church with unregenerate sinners. That's not Christ's great commission. It's Satan's great compromise. It's a satanic conspiracy to shut down the ministry of the gospel that Christ modeled and commanded. We have withheld the means of God's mercy and grace from our cities, states, and nations. We have invited God's judgment and His holy laughter on ourselves and our neighbors as we watch our neighbors celebrate gross sexual perversion, slaughter 125,000 of their children a day, assault and murder each other in the streets, and vandalize, loot, and burn our cities down. We cannot forget that judgment begins with the house of God. What does the Lord Jesus say to America's criminally apathetic pastors, missionaries, churches, and individual Christians? What does the Lord Jesus say to Christians who are getting their best life now, who are busy pursuing things that are quickly passing away while babies die, sinners perish, and America burns? He says this, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. Brothers and sisters, judgment begins with the house of God. Without God's active, sustaining mercy, all it takes is a microscopic virus and the death of one man in Minneapolis to bring us to our knees, to rip our country apart, light our cities on fire, and end the world as we know it. 1 Peter 4, 17-19 once again, then we'll look at Psalm 2. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. God is faithful. Faithful to bring correction. Faithful to bring rebuke. Faithful to bring judgment. Upon His children first, as Hebrews 12 would teach us, that our Father brings the rod of correction perfectly. Where our human fathers brought it imperfectly, but for our benefit, our Heavenly Father brings it perfectly and for our eternal benefit. Psalm 2 terrifyingly assures us that God is laughing in His justice. Psalm 2 also comfortingly assures us of God's gracious invitation to repent, to bend our knee to His anointed, to kiss and obey the Son as our Lord, our King and our Master, and His promised blessing upon all those who put their trust in Him. Let us consider Psalm 2, the sober message of Psalm 2 in this hour in which we so clearly hear God laughing at our united rage and futile rebellion against Him. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. Yet I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion. I would declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give to you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Go back to verse 1, please. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The nations are raging against God, our Creator. And they are plotting a vain overthrow. And it begins with Big Bang cosmology and Darwinian evolution and we'll return to our biblical assault on those lies of the devil. Perhaps next week at his Father's Day, we'll see. But at the very outset, the devil assaults the Word of God and the God of the Word. And the lies are prolific. They're all around us. They're continually brought to bear upon our hearts and minds. All media whether it's song, whether it's movies, whether it's television. All media contains these lies of the evil one and those who serve him. And and remember, there, there are no neutral people. No one is neutral. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you are against me. They're not neutral. Ephesians 2 warns us that until we are born again, until we're made new creatures in Christ, we are servants of the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, consciously or unconsciously. Nevertheless, that's the reality. Dead men walking like zombies serving Satan. The world system is opposed to our God and our King, our God in flesh, Jesus Christ. They rage against Him. 
All sin is rage against God. All the sexual revolution is a rage against God. What you see going on at the abortion clinics is the pinnacle of our rage. It flows from our raging sexual revolution. But hear me, it's a direct assault on the Imago Dei, on the image of God. The devil hates God, and he cannot lay a blow against God himself, but he can lay a blow against the image bearers of God that are created for his glory. And we alone, unlike any other creature, we alone are created in God's image. We alone have eternal souls. We alone are image bearers. And so the devil has waged war against the unborn even as he waged war against Jews several times over, but most recently in the Second World War, convincing a large portion of the population, but not just Germany, mind you, not just Germany. You know what helped make Adolf Hitler so successful in his genocide of the Jews? It was the world's hatred of the Jews. They had nowhere to run. Everywhere they turned, they were told, you cannot come here. And so the devil brought about this genocide using an evil man, Adolf Hitler. And the devil inspires this same satanic genocide or a like satanic genocide today as we dehumanize the unborn like they dehumanized the Jew some years ago. And thus we justify and with clear conscience slaughter them systematically every single day. It's appalling but it's the manifestation of our rage against our Creator and the devil's rage as he incites the world system that serves him. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Mind you, all our rage brought together with all of our technological advances amounts to the better part of nothing. We strike no actual blow against God. Not the slightest bruise. He reigns in the heavens. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. He is all sovereign. His will is not thwarted. There are no contingencies. There is only always plan A. God has allowed this rebellion for a time, for His own purposes, for His own glory, in the honor of His own name, to put both His grace and His wrath on display. Verse 2, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And we see this systematically in our culture. When we legislate things like Roe versus Wade through the judicial system, legalizing the slaughter of the unborn. When we legislate things like gay mirage, Homosexual marriage, it's a mirage, it's not real. Why? Because God defines marriage. God defines marriage. There are no women married to each other. There are no men married to each other. It's a lie. It's a lie. But how committed to that lie are we as rebel sinners against our God? We're so committed to it that even while the state of Oregon still did not recognize the gay mirage... When two lesbians went to the Sweet Cakes Bakery wanting a cake for their so-called wedding and were refused by the Christian owners, the Kleins, the state awarded them a tremendous fine against the Kleins and their bakery, which resulted in its closure. 
So the state had not yet recognized homosexual or lesbian marriage. It still upheld the biblical view of marriage, one man and one woman, as God designed it. Yet our rebellion compelled them to honor this lesbian so-called marriage and to shut down and penalize the Sweet Cakes Bakery for their dishonor of a marriage that the state didn't yet declare marriage legally because they not, had not yet arrived at the fullness of their rebellion that they now have graduated to. But you must see it's incremental. It's incremental. Our rage is increasing. Our rebellion is increasing against our God. You remember perhaps when the homosexual movement wanted to be tolerated. Do you remember those banners? Do you remember those commercials? We simply want to be tolerated. We don't want to be harassed. We don't want to be harmed. We don't want to be beaten. And of course, we should tolerate every human being. We should love every human being. We shouldn't harass them or beat them for their sin proclivities or for their oddities or any other thing. We should love our neighbor as ourself. But that doesn't mean we should celebrate their sin, nor that we should be forced to celebrate their sin. But it's getting to that point. We've now almost gotten to the point and if things do not change i expect we may well where you either become woke you either sign on to the social justice agenda you either literally bow in the street before the social justinians of the black lives matter movement and publicly repent of your sins that they have ascribed to you or you will be ruined professionally and Your business may well be burned down, and it could go to the point that your house may be well burned down. As a culture collectively rages against God, it becomes less and less tolerant of those who stand by God's truth. And the manifestations of their intolerance. First, they wanted to be tolerated. They were tolerated. Then they wanted to be celebrated. They were celebrated even to the point of what? Boasting your abortion. Boasting your abortion. Publicly. We had a great number of Hollywood actresses come out and singers come out boasting their abortion. Making it not a shameful, horrific thing, but a thing to be celebrated a meritorious act. The nations are raging against God. Saying, let us break their bonds, the Father and the Son, in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Now I've got to tell you that Many churches and many Christians will not tolerate that. They will not tolerate a thrice holy God who sits in the heavens and laughs a laughter of judgment and scorn at the folly and foolishness of man's rebellion. But the true God, the God of every true Christian, the God of Holy Scripture, has revealed that He laughs at our foolish rebellion. He laughs at our rage. 
He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. He is speaking. He is laughing. And he is speaking. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Have we not been distressed? Do you think God unjust in how he has distressed us? The one microscopic virus, the one man's death in Minneapolis, our nation is suddenly under tremendous distress through a handful of men with box cutters on 9-11. Our nation was suddenly under tremendous distress. We often think, you know, what will be the demise of this great nation from sea to shining sea, this, this miracle of a continent under one constitution. What will bring this to an end? And, and you think of that you know, classic Red Dawn scenario, right? The communists parachuting out of the sky. Or some great nuclear holocaust. And perhaps that'll happen. Perhaps that'll be the end. But far more likely, what will be the end of America is either the return of the King, Jesus Christ, or our own sin ripping us apart as a judgment of God. God unleashing us to our own sinful proclivities and passions is a judgment, a Romans 1 judgment, turning us over until we rip apart our society. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. When you have a nation that is largely intent on getting its best life now, its longest life now, with, with no concept of eternity, with no concept of a God who reigns in the heavens, with no concept of a God who holds every life in His hand and not one life falls to the ground, not even a sparrow, right? A God who knows the number of hairs on your head. When they do not know that God, when they are collectively ignorant of that God because they've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, what you have is a nation that bows its knee before a virus, that is willing to destroy itself because of a virus, because they have a holy terror, or an unholy terror, rather, of a flu in place of a holy terror of the God who controls the flu. When you have a nation that is raged against its God, rejected its God, and has no concept of Adam and Eve and one race, one blood various hues, then you have a nation that's going to disintegrate into racism. The fiction of racism, that there are different races. There's one race. And that entire race, mankind, is accountable to its God in whose image it was created. When you have a nation, or a planet even, full of people that have rejected God and His law, Thou shall not murder, it unleashes murder. And we're so foolish. We'll murder for many reasons, but the slightest difference is enough to hate your fellow man and murder them. The slightest difference, different accent, not, not just a different language even, different accent. <laughs> they speak the same language, different dialect. They can be the same color, but a slight different shade. They could be the same color and same shade, but have a slight different shape of eye. We'll murder each other 
for the slightest difference. We have a long history of it. This is the result of rejecting our God. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And dear saints, I warn you, the distresses are just beginning. Without revival, without repentance, the distress is just beginning. Verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Christ the King reigns. Christ our King reigns. Despite the rebellion, despite our concerted effort, Christ the King reigns. Even now, in the heavens, over all things, He is all sovereign. There's nothing outside of His reign. And He will reign. He will literally be set on the holy hill of Zion. He will literally come and rule and reign with a rod of iron and put down this insurrection. The blood will flow to the horse's bridles. He will make this rebel gaggle his bloody footstool beneath his feet. Verse 7, I would declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that harkens back to John 3.16, that sweet, wonderful, loving promise. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. But hear me, that's the first incarnation. Hearing of the only begotten Son of God is a wonderful comfort and a joyous word of promise, of mercy for sinners as we consider it in the first incarnation. But there is the second incarnation where Christ comes as champion. Christ comes as king. Christ comes on the great white horse with king of kings and lord of lords written upon him and the sword of his mouth slaying those who oppose him, slaying those who rage against him. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations for your inheritance. The nations will come beneath Christ. They will come beneath Him. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. How tragic it is when tragedies occur in America like 9-11 or COVID-19, or the death of George Floyd and the resulting riots. And the collective response then you see on commercials and you, you see on bumper stickers and you hear on the radio is American pride will see us through. American pride will see us through. America will recover because of American pride. No, America will be crushed because of American pride. America must be humbled beneath its God. All of humanity will be crushed because of its pride. Pride is the root of all sin. It's the root of our arrogance. It's the root of our rage. The beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of God. Pride is the opposite. Pride is insanity. There's a holy, 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 all-sovereign all-powerful, all-knowing God. And I'm a sinner before Him. 
And I'm going to rise up in pride? No, by the grace of God, I'm going to cry out, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips amidst a people of unclean lips. Verse 10, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Be wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1, 7. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Hear me. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. 1 Peter 4, 17. Through 19. This speaks to the kings, the leaders of mankind. What about the pastors? What about the elders? Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. The pastors and elders who are bowing before the social justice movement, the woke movement, the LGBT movement, the homosexual, lesbian, transgender revolution that are declaring, declaring, As the heretic, just a few miles up the street in one of the largest churches in Portland, the heretic they call pastor, declaring homosexual men and women unrepentant, living in homosexual marriage, living in a homosexual lesbian relationship, to be Christians and baptizing them as such. And attending the Black Lives Matter rally downtown as recently as two weeks ago. The pastor of one of the largest churches in Portland. And hear me, he's not the exception. He's the new rule. As pastor after pastor, church after church, Christian after Christian, capitulates to the world. They fear the world, not God. So they bow before the world. They bow before the world's rebellion against God. Then they join it. First they tolerate it. Then they join it. Then they celebrate it. They show up at its rallies. They show up at the women's march, which is all about what? Sexual revolution, and the murder of the unborn children that are the result of the sexual revolution. May God grant the visible church in America, in the West, repentance. This thing called woke, this thing called social justice, this thing called Black Lives Matter, this thing called homosexual Christianity. It's an insurrection. It's an apostasy. And it's raging in the visible church. And so... Psalm 2 isn't just to the world. It isn't just to the kings of the earth. It's to the pastors. It's to the congregations. It's to the individual Christians. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Stop fearing man. Stop fearing viruses. Stop fearing the scorn of those who rage against God, fear the scorn of God and His eternal rage in a very real place called hell. For that's what hell is. The just and holy indignation of God. The punishment due to sin from a holy God, due to sinners from a holy God. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. Serve Him with fear. Don't serve man. Don't serve the fear of man. Don't serve yourself. 
Serve the Lord with fear. Don't serve a culture that's raging against your God. Call that culture and call those individual precious sinners to repentance, to come beneath God, lest they suffer the rage of God, the wrath of God forever. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Isn't that interesting? Rejoicing and trembling united. Our worship should be one of rejoicing and trembling. We're drawing near to God. Holy, holy, holy. Think of Israel at Mount Sinai. Now their response was tragic in that they they pulled back and they said, no, 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 we'll surely die. You go, Moses. You go on our, our behalf. And they should have pressed in. They should have feared and drawn near. Don't fear God and run away. Fear God and draw near and plead His mercy through His Son. But let us not become flippant with God. Even we who have pled upon His mercy through His Son, let us not become flippant. But fear Him and love Him and draw near Him and thus serve the Lord with fear and rejoice, rejoice with trembling. We can rejoice because we're forgiven. We can rejoice because there's mercy and grace in Christ. We can rejoice because the blood of the Lamb has made us whiter than snow. We can rejoice because our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. But God is holy, so we still tremble. We still fear God. We still fear God's judgment upon sin. We still fear even God as our Heavenly Father who is holy and will chasten us justly. We fear that chastening like children should fear their earthly father. Now they should love Him and they should know His love for them, but they should fear rebelling against Him for there's a definite consequence that is very unpleasant. And so we serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Kiss the Son. Now there's no romance here. This is a kiss of allegiance. It's a kiss of a a subject to his or her king. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. Give Him your heart. Give Him your life. Oh yes, your affection, all that you are. Confess Him as Lord, Romans 10.9. If anyone confesses Christ as Lord and believes in their heart that God has raised from the dead, they shall be saved. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Just, just kindled a little, right? It doesn't take the fullness of the wrath of the Lamb to destroy us. He's omnipotent. He will slay the entire uprising with the sword of His mouth, with a word. Remember, this Son is the same Son who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence with a word. Who said, let there be light. And there was light. He shall slay the rabble. He shall slay the rebellion. He shall crush the insurrection once and for all. 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Trust Christ your king. Trust Christ your Lord. Fear him. Love him. Serve him. Don't fear our rebel culture. Don't fear their rage. Stand up for Jesus. Marching as to war with the banner of Christ going on before. What should our response be to this rage, to this rebellion, to this insurrection, to this madness we see in our streets? What should our response be? Should we simply point and say, the Lord is going to crush them one day and dig our bunkers out in our backyards, go to the gun store? No. We have a mission the Lord has given us. The Great Commission, Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. All right, okay, I get that. Go and make disciples. So let's go find some really nice people and tell them to be really nice. That's how most pastors, unfortunately, are understanding that text and applying that text. Go and make disciples. So a really nice, soft-spoken man will stand behind a pulpit and speak to generally really nice, soft-spoken people and say, you should be nicer and speak more softly. Now go, therefore, go, not go to church, go to the world. Go to those raging against your God. Go to those dying in their sin. Go to those who are perishing under one lie of the devil or another. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But that nation is particularly evil, Lord. You know, a lot of Christians are becoming Jonah's. They're sitting back and waiting to watch God judge America. Because America is wicked. Instead of going, therefore, with prayer and hope, that there might be revival in America, that God might be pleased to save America or the West or the entire globe like He once saved Nineveh, granting repentance to an entire nation, city-state. All authority, Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. He has universal, absolute, complete authority Based upon that authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're under the authority of Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. It doesn't matter what other authority says. No, don't speak of Christ. No, don't speak His law. Don't speak His holy commandments. Don't speak His gospel. It doesn't matter what other authority might oppose His gospel. We're under the highest authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, our triune God, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our mission, the Great Commission. As we see our cities burning, 
with the rage of mankind against God, ultimately. It should compel us to go, therefore, and make disciples. It should compel us to wield the sword of the Spirit. As Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It should compel us to go, as Mark 4.14 says, to sow the Word of God. For the sower sows the Word. It should compel us like the apostles before us, to go to all the world, beginning at Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, because Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. And we might think, well, but this this nation is wicked. This nation, oh, they don't want to hear it. They, they, They won't like me for it. They'll reject me. They may harm me. Well, those disciples in the Lord Jesus commanded to go, therefore, and sent out those disciples, went out as lambs among wolves. The Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 3, said, Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. And He sent them out two by two. In Acts 1.8, when He said, You shall be My witnesses, He didn't say, Unless... People don't want to hear it. He didn't say, unless they threaten you. He didn't say, unless they kill you. You shall be my witnesses. I send you out as lambs amongst the wolves. And the Lord Jesus, in his full omniscience, knew that they would suffer and die to a man. All 12 disciples would suffer and die to a man. Not one would be spared. But they would succeed in turning the world upside down. They would succeed in establishing Christianity in the earth. They would succeed to the point that here you and I sit on the opposite side of the globe believing that gospel they were sent to proclaim to all the world. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says, Daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You aren't likely to have time to turn to all these places. I'm going to go quickly. But in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 5, it says, therefore those who were scattered, scattered, why did they scatter? Because they were obeying the Great Commission. No, they scattered because persecution came. They scattered because the hatred of mankind against God spilled over upon them because they were messengers of God. And so, therefore, those who were scattered, says Acts 8, verse 4, went everywhere preaching the Word. Do you want a four-step plan to push back the riots, to put out the fires, to put down the homosexual revolution, to put down the homosexual mirage, to end abortion, and to see every man, woman, and child saved? Washed with the blood of the Lamb. You want a four-step plan? It's right here in Acts 8, verse 4. They went everywhere preaching the Word. Step one, went. You got to go. Two, everywhere. Where do you go? Everywhere the people are. They went everywhere. What did they do when they got there? They preached. They opened their mouths and spoke the Word of God. Oh, they preached what? The Word. They didn't say, I think, I feel, I have experienced. They preached the Word. 
Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Because the Scriptures are that double-edged sword, sharper than a double-edged sword. So they went everywhere preaching the Word. And that's what we find all through the book of Acts. I encourage you, I read the book of Acts every month in my regular Bible reading program. And it's just a blessing to my soul to continually commune with my brothers and sisters in Christ who are turning the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To identify with them. To see how they received the Great Commission. How they kept the Great Commission great and central. Despite suffering, despite hardship, despite being scattered, they endured, they pressed on for the glory of Christ. In Acts Chapter 9, verse 19, it says, So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues. Verse 22, Saul increased in all the more strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ from the Scriptures. In Acts 13, verse 5, It says, when they arrived in Salamis, so they came to this city in Salamis, and they preached the word of God in the synagogues, of the Jews. In Acts 14.1, it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of the Jews and Greeks believed. In Acts 17, verses 2 and 3, in Thessalonica, it says, Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures as his habit was, as his pattern was. That's our custom. As his custom was. That's our ministry. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. In Acts 17.10, he's now in Berea. What do you get? City to city to city to city. The ministry is the same. You find the people, you proclaim the Word of God. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. It doesn't matter what city or what culture. These are various cities and various cultures. It doesn't matter what opposition you face. Opposition in Thessalonica. Well, that's fine. But what do you do? You preach the word. You go to Berea. What do you do when you get there? You preach the word. When they arrived, they went into the synagogues of the Jews. And these were more fair minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily. Acts 17. 10 and 11. Verse 13, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Hear me, if you preach the word, it's going to stir up the crowds. If you're not stirring up the crowds, if there's no opposition, you're not preaching the word. Remember, no one is neutral. Until they love God, they hate God. Until they love God, they'll hate you, the messenger of God, if you're giving them the message. Jesus was the most loving human being to ever walk the planet. And all of mankind collectively united together to hate Him and cry out, crucify Him, crucify Him. Do you think you're more loving than Jesus? Will you demand that the world love you when the world hated your Lord? Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Are you not provoked? Turn on the evening news. Are you not provoked? Your cities are given over to idols. Our neighbors are given over to idols. Let us be provoked. Our neighbors are perishing. This anarchy 
is the evidence of their sin. They're perishing. This fear and trembling before a a virus. Now mind you, wear a seatbelt, put on a helmet. If there's plague in the land, reasonable precautions should be taken. But we have gone way beyond reasonable. It's because people are perishing in their sins. They have no fear of God. They have a fear of death. They want to live as long as they can, fornicate as long as they can, adulterate as long as they can, eat, drink as long as they can, for tomorrow they die. You know what I'm getting? You know what I'm getting? You know what I heard this last week, and I'm hearing it more and more here? See you in Valhalla! I worship Odin! Hail Satan! Paganism is taking root in our land. We're turning from the true God, but in the vacuum of the true God, we're actively worshiping Satan himself. We're worshiping mythological gods of old and hoping on Valhalla, the drunken halls of Valhalla. Paul went to Athens and his spirit was provoked within him. Your spirit should be provoked within you as was his, when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Our spirit needs to be provoked by the Holy Spirit of God in such a way that we then act. And what is the act? To go, therefore, to reason with them where they gather to worship, where they gather in their false religion where they gather in the marketplace with whoever happens to be there. In Acts 14, verse 4, it says, He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. In Acts 19, verse 8, it says, He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude... He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, all who dwelt in Asia. With the current non-evangelistic evangelism method that the church has embraced, we have no intention that all of America would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have no intention that all of our cities, that all of Portland would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sad reality is, our little church has delivered the gospel to far more men and women than all the rest of the churches in Portland put together. And that's not a boast, that's just reality. We have literally preached the gospel over the last 20 years to at least hundreds of thousands, probably over a million. I mean, every time we go to the parade, and preached the entire parade route, I have just preached to well over 100,000 people. And you know what we hear every time along that entire parade route? Praise God, sometimes we hear Christians actually excited and blessed to hear their Lord and Savior preached publicly. And they're thankful. And I praise God for that. But far more often, we hear professing Christians crying out, You're doing it wrong! But of course, we're doing it exactly how Jesus did it. And the apostles did it. Go find the people. Are you not provoked? They're worshiping idols. Are you not provoked? They're dying in their sins. Are you not provoked? They're burning down the cities. 
Go find the people. Bring the gospel to them. Whether they be in the synagogue or the school of Tyrannus or the Athenian square, go find the people and preach to them the one true God and call them to repent of sin and confess Jesus Christ as Lord that they might be saved. In Acts 20, Paul calls for the elders of Ephesus in verse 17. And what does he say to them? He says, You know from the first day that I came to Asia what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept nothing that was helpful, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also Greeks, hear this, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That is his evangelistic ministry. That is his gospel ministry, public and house to house, preaching repentance and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's obedience to the Great Commission, and it's ours if we will actually obey the Great Commission. That's what fills cities with the doctrine of Christ. That's what turns the world upside down with the gospel of Christ. That's what brings revival. That's what brings a revolution of faith and puts down the revolution, insurrection, and rage of man against God the Father and His anointed Son, Jesus Christ. That is the answer to the anarchy. That is the answer to the fires burning in our cities. That is the answer to the homosexual revolution and all of its perversion. That is the answer to homosexual marriage. That is the answer to abortions, 125,000 slaughtered babies a day. That is the answer to the sinner's plight of being one breath and heartbeat from eternal hell. You and I, obeying our Lord, our King, not fearing man, but fearing God. And going, therefore, to make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you, Father, for how it cuts through the confusion, how it cuts through the anarchy, how it gives us hope and clarity and sets us on mission again. For Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. May we press into that work. May we press on in that work. May you grant us endurance. May you grant us joy. May you grant us victory. We know, Lord, there will be opposition. We know, Lord, there will be persecution, hardship, and trial, and yet joy, Lord, and peace that surpasses understanding. And Father, all for whom Christ died, all whom you are calling, all of your elect, all of your chosen, will repent and will confess Christ as Lord through the means you have ordained. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing the word of God as our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And carry forth your law to be a tutor, to bring men to Christ, to be justified by faith in his glorious gospel, his shed blood, his resurrection, conquering sin and Satan and death. Lord, may our spirits be provoked as we see our neighbors perishing and our cities burning. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.